Well, if you guys want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 9, that's where we'll, we'll pick up today. Um, while y'all are turning there, maybe I'll just do a quick recap of what we looked at last week. Last week we were in Acts chapter 8, and in Acts chapter 8, what we saw was uh, we looked at this great persecution that broke out against the church of God um, in Jerusalem, the persecution that began really with the stoning of Stephen. That's really what kicked it off. And uh, we also saw um, the involvement of Saul of Tarsus in that persecution. We saw Saul, um, we, 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 we were shown Saul's involvement in which Luke described it like this. He described Saul as being a ravager. He was ravaging the church. That's the description we got of, of the man we know as the Apostle Paul before being converted. He was ravaging the church. And so this persecution broke out in Jerusalem, very heavy persecution, so heavy, in fact, that everyone um, in the church was forced out of Jerusalem except for the apostles, it says. Um, so the church is cast out to all these outlying areas. The outlying areas are, are, are called Judea and Samaria. And it's there in Judea and Samaria, Samaria um, in particular, where we see the very first converts um, to Christianity, to the way, outside of Jerusalem. And if you remember, it was from the, the evangelism, from the preaching of a man named Philip, that um, the Samaritans received the gospel. And so maybe, um, just to get y'all's wheels turning and get the juices flowing, maybe I'll ask a question. Um, does anybody remember, or does anybody, if, even if you weren't here, does anybody know um, the significance of the Samaritans um, coming to the faith? Anybody, maybe besides Jason, because he got... He got it right last week. Does anybody remember what's so significant about this people group, the Samaritans, being saved? Anybody um, remember or just know? Is it because of their mixed race? Yep, that's right. Oh. That's one of the aspects that was so amazing is that the Samaritans, yeah, they're like a, a, most of the commentators called them half-breeds, right? They, they were Israelites originally. Um, the Assyrians conquered them and intermixed them with other nations, so they weren't a pure people group. They weren't pure Israelites, and the, and, and the Jews looked down upon them and couldn't imagine God accepting them. But now, um, as the gospel, as they receive the gospel, it's really an amazing thing um, for the Samaritans to be saved. Very good, Sarah. Um, one more point, um, as well as the Samaritans, is that we see the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that the gospel is going to be taken outside of Jerusalem from Acts 1.8. That's when he, this is pre-Pentecost, he promised his apostles, he said, um, when the Spirit comes upon you, you're going to receive power to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, which happens at Pentecost, and to Judea and Samaria, which happened there um, last week in Acts chapter 8. And then he says you're going to go to the outermost parts of the earth, which we'll actually get to um, next week uh, with Cornelius being saved. Um, so that's very good. So, okay, everybody's probably there by now, so let's dive into Acts chapter 9. Um, today, you probably have a, a title for the chapter in your Bible, but today we are going to see what really is probably the most significant, the greatest conversion of any person um, in church history. The man, Saul of Tarsus, is going to be converted. This man who was, who, who's self-described as the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee of Pharisee, the, the Christ-hater, this, this church-ravaging man um, is going to become... Uh, the man we know is the great apostle Paul, the man we all try to imitate uh, because he becomes so Christ-like. It's, it's, it's really an amazing conversion. 
And so in Acts chapter 9, we'll pick up just the background of what's going on here. Obviously, um, we're back. This is the pre-converted Saul. He's not converted yet. Um, and he's been hearing that Christianity, the way, is spreading in a, in, a, in a city called Damascus. Damascus is actually about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. Um, it's not even re- very close. But he's hearing that Christianity is, is blowing up in Damascus. And this would worry Saul as he hates the, the spread of Christianity because Damascus is really like a, a, a business hub. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a center of all types of roadways. And so if Christianity was to spread here, it would most certainly um, go out from there and spread to really all the known world. So this would have greatly concerned Saul that, to hear about uh, Christianity spreading um, in the synagogues there at Damascus. So let's dive in, chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. It says this, Now Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now the high priest that um, Saul goes to here is, is the man named Caiaphas. If you remember Caiaphas, it's the same high priest that Jesus stood before um, during his trial, the same Caiaphas high priest that condemned Jesus. And uh, Saul's going to him to get letters, um, letters of authority, letters of right to go all the way up to Damascus to enter these synagogues and to, to, to bind any of those who belong to the way. And the way is, is really just the, the first designation, uh, the first description of, of Christians. The way, the, the, the Christians are people who follow the way, the truth, and the life. They're the followers of Jesus Christ, who is the way to the Father. And so I think the way is, is a very fitting description. I'm not sure whatever happened to that description, but it's very appropriate as we follow the way. There in verse 2, we also saw um, the fact that we talked about last week how in the New Covenant, um, women are likewise blessed in that they get to receive the sign of the new covenant through baptism, right? In the old covenant, women cannot take the, the sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant was circumcision. But now in the new covenant, women get to take part in the sign of baptism, the sign of the new covenant. But also we see in verse 2 here that not only do they get to partake in the sign of the covenant, they also are partakers in the persecution that breaks out in the church um, at the hands of Saul. And so they are fully involved with the persecution as well. And so that brings us to verse 3, which here now begins really um, what some might consider the most memorable scenes in all of the Bible. It, for sure in the book of Acts, this is one of the most memorable scenes, the conversion of Saul. Um, I'm going to read verses 3 all the way down to 9, just so I don't break this up for you. I want us to, to really see how Luke describes this for us. Um, so let, let's start here at verse 3. It says, as he, talking about Saul, was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you, what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, 
and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, can, can you imagine Saul on his way to Damascus? I'm sure he was at a fast pace. I'm sure his teeth were, were grinding. I mean, this guy was, was out for blood. He was seeking to persecute the church of God. He's on his way there, and then in the blink of an eye, the of an eye at the, the moment he least expected, um, he, is, he is confronted. He's, he's really overcome by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It just engulfs him in an overpowering way. It said that this flash of light um, actually blinds Saul. He's caused to fall to the ground. Um, he's incapacitated to the point of, of having to be led from there by the hand. I mean, he was completely overcome by Jesus Christ. And so I just thought, man, I thought, I thought Jesus was a gentleman. What, what is this that, that Jesus has um, done with this man Saul? Um, I know many of you may have uh, attempted uh, to maybe convince a dear brother or sister in the faith of um, the sovereignty of God, or you may have tried to, to show them how God has um, all the right, all the power, all the authority, and that he actually does save um, whoever he wants, whenever he wants. And maybe you haven't had much luck taking them to um, passages in Scripture that are just straightforward, didactic, text, teaching that God is sovereign over salvation. Maybe you've had no luck. So maybe this narrative of Saul's conversion might be um, helpful for you. Look at the way that Jesus Christ um, brings Saul to himself. It's not as many portray Jesus Christ. He's not a, a gentleman here who would never dare to violate somebody's free will. I mean, it's almost as if he literally takes Saul, takes him to the ground, blinding him, and commands him, you're going to do this. Um, that's, this is how Saul gets converted. It's really no different from us as well. I mean, God did the same act in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. He changed our minds. He changed our hearts. That's how the Bible describes it, something that God did. The Bible says that God causes us to be born again. It's not something that, that we did. Um, and just as, as Saul never will, so we never do. That has any one of us ever complained that God violated our free will by, by changing our hearts? Never. I mean, for us, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to us, is that God in his grace changed our, our hearts. I mean, I thank God that he did that. If he, didn't, if he wouldn't have taken that right upon himself, none of us would believe. We would all still hate God. Yes, sir? It kind of reminds me of a quote that I'm, I'm going to paraphrase. Um, you claim to have an encounter with God, but yet you have no outer signs of an encounter with God. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it would be pretty obvious. You yeah. know yourself that... Uh, that's how you can know if somebody's genuinely had... I mean, that sounds like a Paul Washer statement, right? Yeah. It's like, how can God, how can you have an impact with God and it not affect you? If a train hits you, it's going to affect you. How much more God? I mean, it, it, should, it should definitely change you, and, and it does for Saul. So Saul's here. I mean, he's completely overcome with the presence of God. There's no doubt in his mind um, who has who is, uh, overcome him, and so he's forced to ask the question, who are you, Lord? Saul does not understand who's speaking to him at this point. Um, Saul thought he was doing the will of God in all this persecution. Um, he would be very surprised to be overcome by God in this way. Um, in, in there, verse 5, we have, to Saul's great surprise, the answer. The answer is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
Can you imagine Saul's um, surprise at that answer? Um, and Jesus says, I, I, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Present tense, I am who you are right now persecuting. Which raises another question. Um, how, how is Saul persecuting Jesus? Jesus is in heaven. How, what, is, what could Jesus mean by that? Persecuting the church. Exactly. I mean, yeah, this is, this is what, exactly what, what Jesus is saying, and Saul would have understood. Saul's persecuting the church, and by persecuting the church, you are persecuting Jesus Christ. That's an amazing statement. That's an amazing reality, is that the church um, is the body of Christ. The Bible describes it as so. I mean, it's, it's amazing words. Um, it's strong words that the Bible uses for the description of the church, um, but we are the body of Christ. Does anybody happen to know maybe any scriptural references just for that concept of the church being described as the body of Christ? Is anybody offhand? Um, no? Matthew 16. What does it say there? You're talking about the keys? Yeah, around that passage. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's really all over the scripture. I think we almost read over it most of the time because it's, it's become common language to us. But um, the reason I think it's so significant is that if we actually understood that and believed it, it would cause us to act and to treat each other much differently than we do. Would it not? If we, if we actually viewed the church as Jesus views it, as we actually viewed one another as um, the body of Christ, wouldn't we um, have a, a much higher view of each other? Uh, we would treat each other with, with much more respect, with the respect that, that Jesus has given us as his body here on earth. Um, we would be much more prone to, be, to love each other more um, if, we, if we really believe this. And so it doesn't help to, to have a scriptural um, ground for it. Um, I mean, John, are you still looking for that one? I have Ephesians 5. Christ died for the church. Yeah, the whole description of the church uh, being Christ's bride. I have this one. Maybe, uh, I know 1 Corinthians 12, the whole section really is about that. Um, I can just read it to you. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 12, um, starting in verse 25. It says, so that there may, okay, this is, it, the context is good as well. So there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So there's a very explicit statement um, of the fact that we are the body of Christ. For those who persecute um, the church, they are persecuting Christ, and Christ um, will deal with them just as they just as he did with Saul in one way or another. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8.12, if you know 1 Corinthians 8, it's talking about um, Christian liberties and making sure that you're not um, hurting your brother's conscience um, by your exercising of any Christian liberties because there Paul says, if you sin against even one of the weakest brothers, um, you're sinning against him. That's how serious it is to, to sin against a brother. Even if it's the weakest brother in the congregation, in whatever area you cause him to stumble, you're sinning against Christ. So we should definitely take heed um, with that in mind. We are the body of Christ. I mean, it's just, that's encouraging just to hear those words anyway, that we are the body of Christ on, here on earth. Uh, that's amazing. So um, verse 9 again, 
describes um, three days, three days that Saul went without sight. His sight is taken away for three days. So Jesus is really bringing home, I think, um, the reality of um, something uh, else that, that Saul, his entire life, his entire ministry, his entire time of persecuting the church, Saul has been spiritually blind. Saul has been very um, misdirected in his, in his use of the Old Testament, his understanding of the Messiah, his, his view of, of everything that, that the church was preaching. He's been wrong. He's been blind. And so Jesus um, blinds him physically in the same way just to show him just to show him what, how he's been in reality. And uh, can you imagine those three days of blindness um, for Saul, those three days that he's, that he's just after being confronted by Jesus himself? Um, can you imagine what his mind at that time during those three days, the scriptures that would have just, I mean, been flooding? This man knew the scriptures. The scriptures would have been racing, racing through his mind. Um, I think maybe he would have been recounting the sermon he had heard, the sermon of, of Stephen. We saw it was the longest sermon in the, in, the, in the book of Acts. Saul was there, and uh, maybe he could have been recounting some of the things that Stephen was saying. And then uh, I also thought of the fact that he may have even been thinking of the faces of those that he had, Stephen included, that he, that he had killed already and had killed and persecuted, the faces of the church, of those people that he had, that he had hurt. And so this, this great Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, the Hebrew of Hebrews, he's, he has indeed been humbled by God. You know, you know uh, the number three keeps popping up all over the scripture. Uh-huh. And that's another one of those glorious places that it pops up. I don't know exactly. I don't think anybody knows exactly what the numbers mean. Mm-hmm. So you can see in 3, 7, 12, yep. you know, those, those certain numbers that uh, pop up. Seven, especially. Yeah, I mean, three, normally we're, we're looking for something to have to do with the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. I don't know. I don't think the three here would, would link up with that. I mean, yeah, there's, there's significance to biblical numbers. That's, that's for sure. Um, so let's go on because somebody's going to come to Saul's rescue. Saul's been blinded three days, three nights. It said no food, no water, and somebody's going to come to his rescue, verse 10. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And so... uh, this man, Ananias, happens to live in Damascus, the city that, that Saul has been approaching to go seek out Christians to persecute. And uh, God calls him in a vision. And uh, we're going to see here as we go on, Ananias' response to God is basically going to be, um, you want me to go to Saul of Tarsus? Um, are you sure? Are you sure about that, Lord? Is what we're going to see. Let's read 13 and 14 together. It says, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call in your name. So Ananias' first response we heard at the calling of God was, Here I am, Lord. You know, here I am, Lord. Now his, 
after hearing the call, it's more like, well, here I am, Lord, please send somebody else. <laughs> That's pretty much where Ananias is, is at at this point. And look at the, the Lord's response to Ananias' pleading. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Uh, will Saul go on to suffer for Christ's namesake? Anybody know? I'm trying to encourage you guys to shuffle through your Bible index in your mind. Is there any text maybe that you know that describe the sufferings of, of Saul after becoming Paul? Any on the top of your head? That was, a new, that was supposed to be a gimme right there. Yeah, that's right. Second Corinthians 11. We've been looking at this litany of sufferings that Saul is going to go through. Um, this was not a surprise to him. Um, and, and in all of this, in, in, in all of having this, this is maybe what we talked about earlier about this heart change. Um, the sufferings of Saul was not a surprise to him. Saul followed Jesus Christ willingly, knowing he was called to suffer. So you know that was a change of heart. People aren't looking for suffering, uh, but, but Christians are willing. And so God, um, as Ananias as God describes it, he's the chosen instrument of God, God's election of Saul um, to save him, to preach his gospel, is, is just an amazing thing. Because think about it. And this is kind of, this is kind of how I uh, naturalistically view the situation. It's like, why didn't God use um, Stephen? Remember Stephen? That man could preach. He's actually devoted. But like we said, the, the biggest sermon in the book of Acts, that man was preaching. Uh, why didn't God use Stephen to go take the gospel. Stephen knew the Old Testament. Stephen knew um, all of the, the new covenant fulfillment of all of the, 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 the teachings of the fathers and, and the teachings of Moses himself. Why not Stephen? Well, in God's sovereignty, um, as God has all the right to do, St uh, Stephen, God decreed, would be stoned right after that sermon. Stephen is stoned, and God said, you know what? I'm going to use the, 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 the person there overseeing this, this stoning and this murder. I'm going to use him. I'm going to save him and use him to be my vessel to preach my gospel. It's very strange to us, but this is how God, this is how God works. God's in the heavens and does whatever he pleases, and God decided that he was going to save the murderer, Saul, to preach his gospel. Um, for us, we don't personally um, have insight into why God shows us before the salvation of the world um, to, to, to save us one day. We don't know why we were chosen and not um, our neighbor who hates Christ still to this day. We don't know why we were chosen. But Saul, um, interestingly enough, did have some insight into why he was chosen. He had some insight into that. Um, and I think it's worth turning to. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 here. Saul's going to tell us, well, he's now the Apostle Paul. He's going to tell us why God chose to save him. 1 Timothy Chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Wait till I hear all the pages to stop turning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 says this, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost 
Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. That's the reason that God chose to save this murderer, this Christian hater, this church ravager, Saul. It was to demonstrate something. It was to set him forth as an example um, for all those who, who would believe. Nobody can, can um, look to themselves and find an excuse of why they cannot come to Christ and believe the gospel. Nobody is, is sinful enough. Nobody is so evil that God cannot save them. This is the point that, that God was making with Saul. I mean, you could not get any more um, God-hating than Saul was at this point. And so Jesus is removing any excuse for those. Hey, what's up, brother? Good to see you. Um, Acts chapter 9. Um, uh, yeah, so God is removing any excuse for, for any not to come to Jesus Christ. If, if, the, if the death of Jesus Christ is powerful enough, it is worthy enough to, to cleanse the sins and to forgive Saul of Tarsus, no one um, cannot come to Jesus Christ and not have their sins forgiven. That, that's what God is showing through Saul. So, um, Ananias, we're going to see here, Ananias is going to submit to, to Jesus' command to go to Saul. Um, he's going to submit to this. Verse 17 and following says, chapter 9, verse 17, So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you are coming, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. And so what I see in this is, again, we're talking about the change of heart that somebody has when they come to Christ. Look at the, uh, look at the Saul of Tarsus' change of heart. Remember, he's been blinded for three days. He's had no food, no water. And what is the very first thing that he does after regaining his sight, receiving the Holy Spirit? It is not go uh, find something to eat. Saul of Tarsus goes and gets baptized, right? He, he gets baptized. Saul's concern is, is obedience to Christ right out of the gate, even over his uh, physical needs and desires. Right away, Saul of Tarsus um, is wanting to serve Christ immediately. Immediately. I mean, that's, that's the Apostle Paul we know, willing to sacrifice, willing to put aside himself um, in obedience to Christ. That's, this is becoming more of the man we know as the Apostle Paul. Um, any questions before we move on? Um, that's, the, that's, the, that's the Apostle Paul's conversion there. Any, any questions about that? No? That's okay. We can move on because now it's really about to get started. Now, Saul, we're going to keep calling him Saul. I know we all know him as Paul. Um, he doesn't become, Luke doesn't really call him Paul until um, Acts chapter 13, verse 9, but we'll call him Saul. Um, now Saul is going to start preaching Christ. Now we're really going to see the, 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 the Apostle Paul that we know. Um, let's pick up in verse 19b, second half of verse 19 there. It says, For several days now he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. 
all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who, has, who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and was confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Saul immediately began to preach Jesus. And what, is the heart, what was the heart of his message that verse 20 tells us? What's the first description of the Apostle Paul's preaching? That he is the Son of God. That's the heart of Paul's message. Um, he, he understands as he believes this. And so, now what's the significance of being the Son of God? It, it's nothing less than being God himself. You cannot be the Son of God and not be God as well. It gets into a lot of Trinitarian um, issues. Um, I think, uh, let's turn to another passage. Turn to John chapter 5. Because in John chapter 5 is a statement, um, an, an explanation given to us by John about uh, Jesus' claiming to be the Son of God. And we see um, even the Jews understood the significance of saying that you are the Son of God. Um, John 5.18. Notice what it says in, in John 5.18. It says, For this reason, everybody there? John 5.18 says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father. He's calling God his own Father. He's saying he is the Son of God, making himself equal with God. So the Jews got it. As Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, he's making himself out equal with God in that statement. And so this is the message that uh, the Apostle Paul has, is the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, he understood this as the Lord approached him. Yes, sir? Just uh, curious. I don't know if you studied this or not, but could uh -huh. you bring out the difference between... Jesus being called the Son of God, or say somebody like David being called the Son of God, or mm -hmm. anybody in the Old Testament, what's the difference between those two statements? Yeah. Well, the difference between them is we, is we know more explicitly now in the New Testament that everything happening throughout the Old Covenant was all types and shadows, right? So David could be called the King of, of Israel. He could be called the Son of God, all of these things. But we all knew that it was it was focusing um, towards Jesus just in the scripture that Jesus himself used with the Pharisees. Jesus told them, basically, if, uh, how, can, how can David call his son the Messiah Lord, right? How can, how can the Lord come after David if he is, um, you know, if he is the Messiah? Well, it can't be. There's one coming after him who David even calls Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. So, yeah, he kind of uses scripture to explain the significance that there's still another one coming. David even called another Lord. And, uh, yes, sir? I was just going to add with that a little, I would say, speculation that while, they, while Saul was blinded mm -hmm. for three days, um, I'm under the opinion that perhaps that God was revealing Christ through the Old Testament scriptures to him about Christ being God in the flesh. Oh, yeah, no, he was. And then later we see right after that he claims God is the Son. So yep. it wasn't just a blindering, blinded, wandering through, hey, when am I going to get better? Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, that's you know, good. Having something revealed to him 
Right. Yeah, I mean, Kai, when when Jesus appears to him as Lord, Saul is right then and there convinced of one thing: Jesus Christ is Lord. That he has been wrong about his interpretation of the Messiah. And so, yeah, what, uh, whether whether God is is actively revealing even more truth into him, um, he knew. Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the Old Testament. He knew all the prophecies of the Messiah, and he had misinterpreted them. So once he's convinced of the reality that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, now he can go back to all those scriptures he knew, and now he can, he can work through them with a proper um, Christocentric hermeneutic. Now he knows Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Um, this is another point that I didn't think of. I heard another guy say it, but it's true. The, the Apostle Paul's conversion is, is also a very good, um, encouraging uh, truth for us to take home who have children. This is why it's helpful to um, teach your children, to pour into your children the Word of God. A lot of people think, well, you know, kids, they don't get it. You know, they're memorizing all this scripture. They're not even believers. You know, what if they never get saved? Well, look, you want to fill them with the Word of God because when God does save them, Boom, they are ready. They have it all ready, you know, to use for good. You know, you don't want them to be converted dry. They don't want to be dry and have to start all over. You know, take advantage. Plus, besides, the Word of God is what saves people anyways. So our prayers, as we're teaching our children the Word of God, that they would be saved, but you want them to be ready so that God can use them immediately when they get saved so that they can know the Word of God. And, and so Saul's the same way. Saul knew the Scriptures, he, he misapplied them and abused them his entire life until that day that he was ready to prove that, look at this aspect, look at back at verse 22. Verse 22 says, he's so convinced, he knows the, the Old Testament and, and Jesus Christ in the Old Testament so well that he is able to prove that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, these, are, these are what that Saul was teaching. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. The, the, being the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One, um, it, it goes hand in hand with this description of being the Son of God. They go hand in hand. Um, I won't have you flip there just for time's sake. Maybe I'll just read this text to you just to show you how um, the, the understanding of being the Christ, being the Messiah, being the Son of God, I'll go, I'll go hand in hand, is, is from Matthew 26. It's when Caiaphas, the high priest, um, Jesus is standing before Caiaphas, and, and Caiaphas is... is questioning Jesus. This is what it says in, in Caiaphas' questioning of Jesus. It says uh, verse 63, but Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. So there, um, Caiaphas actually uses the description Son of God in apposition to being the Christ interchangeably. Same, same person they're looking for, the same Messiah. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Um, if we go on here in verse 23, look at how verse 23, look at this little phrase that verse 23 begins with. It says, when many days had elapsed. When many days had elapsed. So uh, maybe this would be for those who are familiar, uh, maybe have some concept of all the issues that uh, we have to work through when it comes to trying to build a timeline and a sequence of all of the events of Paul's life. You know, you may have seen timelines in your Bibles or as you're studying, you know, they all have the, the maps of Paul's missionary journeys and where he went at what time. We, we always try to, we want to know exactly um, the timeline of Paul's 
um, ministry. And so in order to do that, in order to see Paul's um, timeline, you have to put a bunch of texts together because not every author is including everything in each description. And this is a perfect example here. When it says, when many days had elapsed, I actually think, and, in, and most commentators agree, that included in this many days is actually three years. Because if you know from Galatians chapter 1, um, Saul said, or he, the Apostle Paul, as he says this, but he says, after his conversion, he says he immediately went to Arabia, to the desert of Arabia for three years. Do you all remember him saying that? in Galatians chapter 1, and so this must be included here in these many days that elapsed, actually three years, um, depending on how the Jews count years, um, that's another issue as well. This was very hard to put the, the sequence of Saul's um, life in order. I mean, now that I'm studying Acts, it's actually helping everything that I thought I understood about Galatians. Now it's, it's starting to come together, some of these sequences of events. Um, so... Um, Let's go on here. So when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And so already we're seeing Saul um, escaping persecution the great persecutor of the church is already himself now having to escape persecution. I know um, just a couple weeks ago, if we all know Brother Marshall, uh, me and him were, were just talking about um, these times that we've had, these, these uh, crazy moments out on the streets, you know, when we're sharing the gospel and preaching. And there's those times when you're, you're preaching to people and you're getting really worried that something bad's about to happen. You can tell the people are are not um, receiving, and, and you can get really worried sometimes. And when that happens, you have to make a decision. Are you going to keep preaching, if come what may, or are you going to uh, maybe uh, step down, try to defuse the situation, you know, try to calm it down so that, that nobody gets hurt? You, know, you, you have to make those judgment calls, um, and the Spirit leads you. you know, like I said, sometimes you'll stay and preach, come what may. Um, other times, you, you flee, just like Saul here, you flee to preach another day. The Spirit leads, you know, we, and, and when we talk about this and when we think about this, uh, for everybody who likes to go out, um, we see the, the, the Apostle Paul making many different decisions as persecution comes to him. He doesn't always stay and preach. Right here, he gets in a basket, probably a clothes basket, and, and hides through a window. Other times, like um, Acts chapter 14, for instance, we're going to see him, as a result of his preaching, get stoned, dragged out of the city, left for dead, and what did he do? He gets back up and marches right back into the city. So, you know, it really just seems to be as the Spirit leads, as you use your discernment and wisdom, are you going to count the cost and keep on preaching? Um, how bad do you want these people to, to get the gospel, you know, in hopes that, that Christ will save them? Or, or do you think maybe it's more wise that you'll reach more maybe if you, um, uh, if you, if you step down maybe and, and to kind of diffuse the situation? You, know, you just reread those situations as they come. But here, Saul flees. Saul's hiding. We're going to see him do it again in this chapter as well. So going on now in verse 26, keep in mind, as I said, this is about three years now since, since Saul's conversion. Verse 26 says, When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. 
And so he's back in the same situation as he was with Ananias. Remember Ananias? Go to Saul. Ananias is afraid of Saul. He doesn't want to go uh, because Saul is a known terrorizer of the church. Here, Saul tries to go to Jerusalem, and the Christians are, are terrified of Saul. They won't even meet with this man. And, uh, and we, can, we cannot blame them for that. We know that the persecution that Saul brought against the church was, he was ravaging the church, men and women. This, the church was terrified of him. Um, but I also thought, maybe look at this also from Saul's point of view. Can you imagine Saul now returning? Because remember when Saul left Jerusalem, he had orders, he had letters from the chief priest to go persecute the church in Damascus. He was going to bring back all these men and women bound and hold them trial for, for teaching false doctrine and blasphemy. Um, think about Saul's perspective now. If he's coming back into Jerusalem, Saul's now a Christian himself. And so can you, can you imagine just the, I don't know, awkward is not even a strong enough word, but just the, just the tension and the difficulty of returning to Jerusalem. I mean, he's going he's gonna to see um, the, the, all the Pharisees, the Pharisees that sent him out. He's going to be reconfronted with them. Um, he's going to see his teacher, Gamaliel, the teacher that told him, stand down. You might be fighting against God if you're persecuting this church. He didn't listen. He's going to have to meet him. Um, think about him having to meet um, the family of Stephen, all these families that he's persecuted and killed. Um, Saul's going to have to to face these people that he hurt um, prior to his conversion. Um, but we don't ever see any trouble from the Christians with Saul. Um, the, the Christians understood the the doctrine of justification. The, the Christians understood uh, reconciliation, forgiveness of sins. Right? If somebody becomes a convert to Christianity, they they were wicked just like you were wicked. They, they've been forgiven just like you were forgiven. You know, we don't see anybody um, giving Saul a hard time because of his previous sins. And neither should we for anybody who, who comes to Christ. Um, so the, the apostles, the disciples, everyone's terrified of Saul except one, except Barnabas. Verse 27 says, But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles, and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And so Barnabas, we, we saw him mentioned in Acts chapter 4, Barnabas was the good example of one who sold all his land and gave it to the church. That was Barnabas, um, before Ananias and Sapphira was mentioned. Barnabas was mentioned, and here he, he, he goes and takes Saul, brings him to, he has compassion on him, brings him to the church, um, and he really earns his name. Does anybody remember what Barnabas means? That's kind of, a, that's a hard one. Exactly. Yeah, he earns his name. He's a son of encouragement. Barnabas goes and takes Saul, um, hears out his testimony, has compassion on him, brings him to the apostles, and, uh, and, so, and so he does. And maybe just really quickly, uh, I wanted to get into more of these parallel passages and how they help us. But again, Galatians 1 helps us clarify. I just like to have as much as I can about the situation in my mind so I'm viewing it correctly. You know, I've seen so many Jesus movies. It's kind of distorted our view sometimes of how these things go down. Uh, but here, as Saul goes into Jerusalem, Barnabas brings him to the apostles. Galatians 1 tells us exactly which <coughs> apostles he actually met. Because he actually only met two. Galatians 1 tells us. I'll just read it to you. Um, Galatians 1.18 says, Then three years later, there's the three years again, I went up to Jerusalem 
to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter. He went there to become acquainted with Cephas, and he stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother. And so in Galatians 1, Paul tells us exactly who he met when he came uh, to Jerusalem. He only met two apostles, Cephas, who is Peter, and, uh, and James is called an apostle. He was not one of the twelve. James was the brother of Jesus Christ, um, is a natural brother to Jesus Christ, who obviously came converted um, at the resurrection, most likely, because he was not a believer during Jesus' ministry. The resurrection saved him, and he became actually a leader, a pillar in the church. Um, so, so the other apostles were most likely out of town ministering. They were out of town. They, they, he would have met with them if they were there. Um, so we also see that, that Saul is not just sitting around for these two weeks, for this 15 days that he's with the apostles. He's not just sitting around talking theology. This is the Saul that we know. Saul's at work. Um, look at verse 29. It says, he was not just talking to the apostles, but and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. But they were attempting to put him to death. So again, Saul, it says, is arguing, debating with the Hellenistic Jews. Does anybody remember what that description means? What does it mean to be a Hellenistic Jew? Anybody remember off the top of your head? I know I mentioned a lot of these things in passing. Yes. They're Greek speaking. Exactly. Adopted the Greek culture. Exactly. Hellenistic Jews. They were probably from the, the, the diaspora, they call it, from the scattering of the Jews at one point. They, their main language was, was Greek and they're called Hellenistic Jews. These are actually the same Jews, if you remember, that, that Stephen was debating with. These are the Jews that brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin and had him stoned. Same Jews. Now, um, Saul is arguing with them at this point. Um, and so the believers, let's read verse 30 and help us. It says, but when the brethren learned of it, when the brethren learned that Saul was, was debating and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Okay, so when the believers hear that Saul's um, getting the Hellenistic Jews riled up again, just as, as Stephen did, it says that they, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him away. They sent him away. It's really, I, I think it's funny. You can't help but laugh. Look at the reaction of the church now of, of this fire-breathing um, Apostle Paul, this great debater, this one who can prove that Jesus is the Christ. Look at the reaction of getting him out of there. Verse 31 says, So... The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. They enjoyed peace. Saul is sent away, and they enjoyed peace. It says that they're being built up. They're going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it continued to increase. And so Saul um, is sent back to Tarsus, which you'll remember at his hometown. Saul sent home, and the church has peace. Um, the peace is not in the church simply because Saul's um, gone. Um, all the apostles would have been preaching the same gospel as Saul, but, but Saul's gone. Saul had him riled up. Um, but we also know because, as I talk about the timeline of Paul's life and the timeline of the book of Acts, we're looking at a section uh, that's like 36 to 37 A.D. Okay, and in 36 to 37 A.D., it's not just that Saul goes away, but there was also... Um, a lot of political change in the Roman government at this time. Um, political, political government changes that would have, um, that obviously benefit the church. Um, the Roman government's changing leadership. Josephus, if you're well, the historian Josephus in Antiquities, he describes some of these changes. I'll just note a couple for you here. Josephus says that during this time, the Roman emperor Tiberius dies. 
um, Pontius Pilate is replaced. Remember Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate's replaced. Pilate's successor then comes in and then removes Caiaphas as the high priest. The Roman government obviously had power to remove the high priest from his seat. And so all of these changes in the government, even in the, um, the, the synagogue, um, all of these changes allow the church to flourish. Um, you know what, we're going to try to finish this in like five minutes. Does anybody have kids? Sarah, do you need to pick up the kids maybe? Oh. Yeah, let's, if you've got any kids in the, in the Sunday school, let's, let's go get them. Um, we're just going to finish up this, this, this very uh, small section here at the end. Um, so <coughs> Saul's back in Tarsus at his, at his hometown, and uh, now Luke's going to turn his focus back uh, away from Saul, back to Peter. Now we're going to get and see back to Peter what Peter's been up to. Um, the churches are having peace. Peter is going to set out um, to go minister, to check in on all the churches that got planted as a result of the preaching of Philip. Do you remember what happened to Philip after he baptized the eunuch? What happened to him? He, got, he disappeared. He got snatched away. And he got snatched away, that same verse, you know, that famous verse for the rapture, that, that snatching away, that's the same word that, that got used for... Uh, for Philip, I definitely think it was a supernatural snatching away. Um, and, and, he, and he appears at these coastal cities um, next to the Mediterranean Sea. And, he, and, it, and it describes him as preaching the gospel to all these cities. Now, Philip, I mean, uh, Peter's going to go to these cities and check on the churches there that, that receive the gospel. That's what's happening. Let's read uh, verse 32. Now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden for eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. All who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Okay, so Peter shows up, performs a great miracle of, of healing a bedridden man for eight years, the Spirit is obviously using this miracle um, to, to, to increase the faith of, of the people and the gospel that Peter would have um, likewise brought, and the, Peter that Philip had, the gospel that Philip had brought. And it says many were converted. Many were converted. God's using um, even the miracles um, to bring people to Christ. And uh, so God's using the, the healing of a paralytic man that was, that was paralyzed for eight years. Well, God's even going to take it up a notch. Um, in the ministry of Peter, as we go on to see here. It's going to get even better than the healing of a paralytic. Um, it's going to get quite amazing, in fact. Look at, look at verse 36. It says, Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. We're going to call her Tabitha. <laughs> this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and she died. And when they had washed her body, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him, saying, Do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. And so this woman must have been some sister in the Lord. And um, we see Luke's description of all the kind deeds that she did. Um, 
all, all the, the mercy that she showed people, all the good works and charity that she did for the church. Uh, this woman must have been a blessing to the church, um, so much, in fact, that they could not imagine um, going on without her. They could not imagine going on um, without this sister in the Lord. That's how much um, she did for the church. And so I just thought, men as women as well, um, this woman, Tabitha, is most certainly somebody to admire, somebody to emulate. Um, we should all seek to, to be um, such a blessing to be used in the church to such an extent that if we were to die, the church would miss us. We want to be that kind of, of saint in the church, that, that, that type of body member that um, the, the church would not want um, to be without. Tabitha was bearing much fruit, and the church missed her. Um, let's go on, verse 40 says, But Peter, Peter sent them all out, and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, it says, Peter turns to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened up her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. That's, that's, that's a miracle there for you. Resurrection from the dead. Um, is there any greater miracle that could happen than to bring life from death? I mean, the resurrection, the fact that, that God is resurrecting people from the dead, that he's doing it through Peter, um, this should be a sure sign that God is, in fact, um, working through Peter. He's able to raise, this is something that only God can do. Only God can raise from the dead. And uh, amazingly, Peter um, brings this, this Christian woman back to the church and raises her from the dead. The last verse, verse 43, is really basically just um, introducing us and, and setting us up for the next chapter, chapter 10. It says, And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with, tannin, with, a, with a tanner named Simon. Okay, we'll get into that next time. Um, Pastor Milo is actually going to have Sunday school next week. Um, but, but we'll get back in chapter 10 when, when I return. But that's chapter 9. So at this point in the history of the church, we have Saul. Saul converted. Saul preaching. Remember, he's been sent up all the way up to Tarsus. I mean, I don't even know how many miles. It's very far um, from Jerusalem. He's back at, in the areas of, of Cilicia and Syria. He's at Galatians again. is telling us that he's actually ministering while he's there. He's not just back at home with his family. And... Uh, and that's what, that's what Saul's doing. He's ministering up there, spreading the gospel. Now we have Peter ministering, spreading the gospel, performing great miracles around Jerusalem. The church is flourishing. The gospel's being spread, and, uh, and, that, and it's a beautiful thing. So next time, and, and when we get to chapter 10, we're going to see um, Christ's um, command and, and his promise that the gospel is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. We're going to see that happen um, as the Gentiles are officially brought into the church of God. We'll see that in, in Acts chapter 10 next time. Amen? Let me, let me pray and we'll go to service. Well, Father, Father, we thank you so much, God, for the freedom, God, to come together. Just as John prayed, God, we have the freedom to come together um, still in this place in peace, God, and to, 
look over your scriptures. God forbid that we would um, not take advantage, Father, and, and, thank, and, and be thankful, God, as we get to reach for our Bibles today. Father, we pray that you would bless Pastor Milo's preaching. We pray that as we all hear the same text preached to us, God, that, that it would bring unity amongst the body, God, that we would all have the same mind, Father, in our worship of you. So bless the preaching, God. May your spirit move and move in us, God. Help us to love you and love each other as we should. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.